Hello, listeners. I just wanted you to know that my soundtrack in this interview is sounding a little off because of a malfunction, and I didn't find out until it went to edit. The interview is solid. Eric J. Dolan's track is fine. And since these interviews are not about me, I'm going with it. My apologies for the sound quality on my track. Thanks for your support and understanding. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And this is the story of a largely unsung group of American heroes during the American Revolution who fought the British at sea. American privateers, they were, nearly 2,000 of them, who were given a license to attack and seize British ships, from warships to merchant ships, and greatly contributed to our winning our independence. Author Eric J. Dolan is about to share this untold story in his new book, Rebels at Sea. Eric, it's great to have you with us today. Uh, Great to be here. Thanks. I was greatly impressed by this book, Rebels at Sea. Your research and this subject matter, our fledgling Navy and their many privateers uh, fighting the revolution, did a lot to bring us the necessary supplies that they captured from the British, from warships, from merchant ships, you name it. Just a fantastic story. And it's a page turner because you add a lot of action to it. Thanks. I I appreciate that. And one thing you said is particularly important to me, and that is that the story is largely unknown. And that's what got me most interested in writing the book, uh, because I didn't want to just hash over history that had already been talked about in numerous books. And uh, the, the idea for this book actually came from an earlier book of mine called Black Flags, Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates, because in that book, I talk a lot about privateering. But during that era, the late 1600s and early 1700s, many, quote unquote, privateers were actually pirates. Uh, They had letters of mark, but they acted just like pirates. And a lot of people assume privateering is legalized piracy. And I got interested in what was privateering like during the American Revolution. And what I found is that the privateers that operated during the American Revolution were most definitely not pirates. Uh, They were fighting on behalf of a patriotic cause, the creation of their new nation. They also had a profit motive, but they weren't like pirates, enemies of all mankind, attacking any ship out there and taking the proceeds just for themselves. There was a larger cause implied and that that was involved. So that's how I got interested in the story. And the comment you made is one that I've heard many times in the talks I've given on the book so far. Somebody just the other night, I was on Nantucket and he asked a question. He said, I have read a lot about American history. I know a lot about the American Revolution. I've never heard about these privateers and privateersmen. How could that be? And we we got into an extended back and forth about how I think that could be. But uh, that's what I'm hoping people's reaction is to reading the book is this sort of fleshes out a little bit the, 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 the larger story 
about the American Revolution and the fact that, as George Washington said, it was a standing miracle that we won. There are many different factors that went into it. There were land battles, there was a Continental Navy, there was Washington's secret Navy. But my point is there were also privateers and privateersmen. And without them, I truly believe that the outcome of the war might have been different. Would you give us a little bit about your background? Um, what brought you to this? What inspired you to do the book? Sure. Uh, well, my background is kind of unusual for writing books about maritime history. My undergraduate, master's, and PhD are all in biology and environmental policy. <laughs> and uh, I, I worked, I had a number of jobs in the environmental field, public policy field. I worked in London. I worked in the United States. I did consulting. I worked for academic groups. And the one thing that interested me the most in all of my jobs was the opportunity for writing. I always loved writing. And I started writing a lot when I was in high school and college, but not about history. I'd write humor pieces. And I actually had a couple of editorials published in the New York Times when I was in college. And so that got me sort of, I got bitten by the bug of writing. And uh, towards the end of the 1990s, I'd already written a, a number of books while I was a graduate student and while I had jobs. And I thought, you know, this is what I'd love to do. I, I love history and I love writing about it. And I'd rather do this than the jobs I'm currently employed with. So I remember turning to my wife and telling her I wanted to be a full-time writer. And this is about 1999, 1998. And she said, that's fine. She's very supportive. She said, that's fine. But first, before you take the jump to being a full-time writer, you have to uh, put aside a year's worth of your salary as a cushion. So it took me about five or six years to do that. I kept writing books on the side, waking up early in the morning, working on the weekends. And finally, in the summer of 2007, my wife told me that I could quit my job. I was working as a fisheries policy analyst in Gloucester for the National Marine Fisheries Service. And it took me a little bit of you know, to work up my courage to quit because I had a good paycheck. It was a steady paycheck. Being a writer is a lousy way to earn a living. But with you mean, my you wife, mean writer, you mean writers actually work six days a week? And, <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and, and don't make a million dollars? <laughs> yes. So I uh, basically I quit my job in 2007 and I've been a full time writer ever since. How, but maritime issues always fascinated me. When I was a kid, I wanted to grow up and be Jacques Cousteau. That's what got me into marine biology. So I've always had an affinity for the ocean. And I live here in Marblehead, which, of course, is right on the Atlantic Ocean. Even though I'm not a sailor, I love sailing ships, the history related to them. And uh, that's how I fell into this pattern of writing books about maritime history. And this book in particular, as I mentioned before, grew out of my pirate book because I talked a lot about privateers. But I wanted to see what privateering was like during the American Revolution when it was a very different kind of thing. And just to give you an example, in Black Flags, Blue Waters, during King William's War at the end of the 1600s, the American colonies uh, issued many letters of mark for privateers to go out and attack the French because Brit England was at war with France. But those quote unquote privateers, instead of going to attack French ships, they left and they went around Cape Horn and they attacked Mughal ships or Muslim ships transiting between India and the Red Sea ports of Jeddah and Mocha 
and captured all the booty that was on board, brought it back to the colonies. And this was a money-making operation. The colonial governors sold the letters of mark for 300 pounds a piece. And when the quote-unquote privateers, or really pirates, came back, they had to pay 100 pieces of eight, or roughly 100 pounds sterling, per head just to have permission to get back into port without being molested by local officials. Because of course, England hated piracy. It was against the law. And what these guys were doing was out and out piracy, but it was condoned in the colonies because these were the fathers, sons, and brothers of the colonists. And they were enriching their lives and their families' lives and the colonies' lives by bringing back money and goods from quote unquote infidels or Muslims halfway around the world. So that was an example of privateering being used for nefarious purposes. They were nothing more than pirates. And after the uh, the uh, war of the Spanish succession, which ended in 1713, a lot of true British privateers were thrown out of work. And what they did is many of them decided, well, we're in the Caribbean, we have the skill of capturing ships so why don't we become pirates? And that's what many people believe Blackbeard, that he was perhaps a privateer during the War of the Spanish Succession. And he and many other individuals helped to launch the second phase of the golden age of piracy. So that's what got me interested in privateering. But the privateering that took place during the American Revolution was of a very different type. And the other thing that got me excited about it is the American Revolution is the seminal event in American history. I mean, it ranks right up there. Of course, the Civil War was quite important, as was World War II. But the American Revolution is what created the United States. So I think we all have a vested interest in understanding why we won this war, which was a very tenuous thing during the time. You know, people have, a, have the habit of looking back on history and assuming that everything that transpired was inevitable. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. It was a very touch and go thing. And I actually believe that the British, if they hadn't been so arrogant at the outset and they, haven't viewed all, they hadn't viewed all Americans as being rabbles in arms, a rabble in arms, they might have won the war within a year or two instead of having it dragged out for seven or eight years and ultimately losing uh, a war of attrition almost. So I just love the American Revolutionary period. And I realized that privateering gave me an opportunity to give a new twist to the story. And you asked how I, I think you asked how I research a little bit or how long it takes me to work on one of these books. Typically, I've written 15 books. Typically, they mostly take about 18 months to 22 months, sometimes two years to research and write. But COVID caused a change in that. Uh, I signed the contract for this book about two weeks before the national disaster was uh, uh, proclaimed for COVID and everything shut down. Libraries, everybody went home. March My of wife, 2020. Yeah, March 2020. My wife uh, came home. She started working from home. My daughter came back from New York City where she was a, it worked in a literary agency and she worked from home. My son was in college. He came home. So we we're all here. And I was in my office where I'm speaking to you from. And because so much was shut down, I didn't have as many places to go. So I had more time to work on the book. And I actually finished this book in about 14 months. So in a way, I have, I have COVID to thank 
for speeding up the process. And one other funny story is a lot of my research is done at Harvard's Widener Library, one of the best libraries in the world. And fortunately for me, about a week before the national emergency was declared, I went into Harvard's Widener Library for two days. And I spent two solid days copying sections of old books, new books, uh, downloading hundreds of original newspaper articles, diaries, letters from people in the Continental Congress, all sorts of primary and secondary materials that I put on my little USB stick, brought home and uploaded onto my computer. And if I hadn't just by happenstance gone into the library about a week before the shutdown, because the library shut down too, I'm not sure I could have written this book or if I could have written the book that I wanted to write because there were so many critical materials that I was able to get through the Widener Library that were suddenly closed off to me at the end of March. So it's really been a wild a couple of years for everybody, but it was also a very strange couple of years for me as a writer. And in Massachusetts, you were right in the heart of the number one state of privateers. They provided, right. they provided more for the revolution than any other state. You, right. You just don't get the people of Massachusetts. You don't get the ocean-going people of Massachusetts mad at you. <laughs> right. Yes. They they uh, they were put out of work. All the mariners, merchant mariners, and fishermen by the draconian laws and restrictions that were placed on Massachusetts in particular, New England more generally, and then the col colonies as a whole by Britain. And yes, yeah, so there was there was a huge reservoir of men who were out of work. And there, were huge, there was a huge reservoir of merchants who owned ships who were laid up at the docks. So privateering gave the merchants a way to hopefully profitably employ their ships. And it gave the men who operated on those ships, the privateersmen, an opportunity to hopefully make money. Now, as we'll probably get into, many of them didn't make money. Many of them weren't successful. And unfortunately, many thousands, perhaps more than 10,000 privateersmen died in prisons and prison ships. Yep. So it wasn't all upside for privateers and privateers. Let's begin with the condition and size of our Navy in 1775. Where were we? Where did Washington stand? Of course, they didn't, he didn't even have orders to do anything on the ocean. But where did he stand in terms of uh, being able to go up against the greatest Navy on Earth? Well, in 1775, we had absolutely no Navy to speak of. We were not even a nation. I mean, coming up with a Continental Navy or coming up with a Navy for a, a well-functioning, well-funded government would have been a gargantuan task for the Continental Congress. It was almost an insurmountable challenge. But the first person to take the leap was George Washington. He was appointed head of the Continental Army in July of 1775. He came into Boston, which was under siege by the British, and he realized that his men only had uh, enough ammunition and bullets to shoot their weapons nine times, perhaps. And they were very eager, the 20,000 or so militiamen that showed up, but they weren't well functioning, to say the least, and they weren't well supplied. So he had to figure out how to supply them with limited means. And, uh, you know, one way, of course, was to send off people to Fort Ticonderoga and bring back cannons, which ultimately proved to be very important. But another way was to engage in some kind of uh, forays at sea. So he was convinced, 
to, without any congressional authorization, to uh, create his own secret navy of a number of, about, I think about 10, 20 ships that went out and they basically, their main charge was to capture munition ships that were being sent over by Britain to resupply the British Army and the British Navy. Um, and they did a good job. They captured a couple of very uh, heavily laden ships that helped uh, George Washington hang on during that uh, perilous first year or so. But after about a year and a half, his Navy disappeared. The Continental Navy uh, took over. The Continental Navy was first established on October 13th, 1775. Continental Congress learned a couple of days before that that George Washington had gone ahead and created his own secret Navy. So they followed suit with the Continental Navy. And uh, we built a number of frigates. We bought a number of ships. We were loaned ships by uh, France. But in the end, the Continental Navy was only made up of about 60 vessels. And uh, their record was not a particularly enviable one. John Adams, who was a huge fan of the Continental Navy, and privateering wrote in 1780 that when you look back on the history of the Continental Navy, it's hard to avoid tears. So although this was the Navy's first uh, hour, it wasn't its finest hour. And I'm not trying to disparage the Continental Navy, I'm just trying to put it into perspective of the 60 vessels, about half of them were either sunk, lost, or captured. And in many cases, they were burned by their own men to keep them from falling into the hands of the enemy. So, uh, you know, our, our Navy went on to do much greater things in subsequent wars. And, but during the American Revolution, the Continental Navy was not a major force. It had some high points. There was, of course, John Paul Jones' battle against the Serapis. Uh, it did a very good job of transporting diplomats and correspondents across the Atlantic. It did capture some munitions in the uh, Caribbean, and uh, it captured about 200 prizes. But by comparison, uh, privateers, of which there were nearly 2,000 of them, captured around 2,000 British prizes. So they had a much greater impact on the outcome of the war. But the big spark was when Congress uh, passed a law uh, saying that we would give basically letters of mark to privateers that they could share a percentage of the bounty. Whose idea was that? Who went to Congress with that? And how did it get approved? Well, uh, the first people to jump was Massachusetts, of course. Massachusetts established a colony based privateering system on November 1st of 1775. And John Adams, who was part of the push behind that, he would write about 40 years later that uh, the Massachusetts Privateering Act, uh, you know, the, the Declaration of Independence compared to the Massachusetts Privateering Act was a trifle in comparison. So he felt the Massachusetts Privateering Act and its role in unleashing privateering across the colonies was a much more important document and event than the Declaration of Independence, which we all revere so much today. So I think that's a very interesting perspective. Then uh, Rhode Island and New Hampshire in early 1776, they came up with their own privateering statutes. And then finally, there was some pressure from the colonies on part of, on the Continental Congress to move ahead with privateering on a colony-wide 
basis. Don't do it on a piecemeal basis, colony by colony, but do it for all of the colonies. And they finally succumbed to that pressure. There was a, in particular, there was a letter that was written by Philadelphia merchants imploring the Continental Congress to move ahead with privateering. And uh, that finally came to pass in March of on March 23rd of 1776. And then the regulations for privateering were issued to the colonies a couple of weeks later. So from that point forward, all letters of mark, all privateering licenses were continental in nature. Uh, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island stopped issuing their own privateering licenses. But it was the responsibility of the colonies to issue these letters of mark. So the Continental Congress printed a whole bunch of blank copies of letters of mark, sent them out to the colonies so they could uh, create their own privateering force. And what was interesting, Thomas Jefferson, who was the governor of Virginia, a lot of people don't realize that at one point he was a governor of Virginia, pleaded with the Continental Congress at one point to send him more letters of mark because he had a lot of men who wanted to go to sea as privateers but there weren't the official documents available for them to sign that gave them legal cover to actually be privateers. So it was just a fascinating time. And privateering uh, was like wildfire. It extended across the colonies like wildfire, especially in the earliest years. Hundreds of privateering licenses were issued. And one person reflecting on what was happening around 1778-1779 said that the colonies have gone privateering mad and that madness persisted for most of the revolution. We'll return with Eric J. Dolan, Rebels at Sea, right after these sponsor messages. And now back to Rebels at Sea. Let's talk a little bit about the heroes of Rebels at Sea and there were quite a few. These are the guys who probably should have made the history books for, for some reason it didn't. Let's start with Jonathan Harridan. Tell us a yep. little bit about him and why he should have his name inscribed in gold. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan Harridan was uh, a privateersman from Salem, Massachusetts. He started off his career. We don't know much about his early life, but he ultimately ended up in Salem and he was a uh, an apprentice to a local merchant. He got ma maritime experience when the war broke out. He decided he wanted to fight for his country to be. So he signed up with the Massachusetts State Navy. He was on board a ship that was appropriately called the Tyrannicide, <laughs> trying to get rid of George III <laughs> there. And he had a conflict with the state over pay. So he ultimately left state employee, but he still wanted to fight on behalf of his country. So he chose to go on a privateer named the Pickering. And on and that was out of Salem, Massachusetts. And the Pickering captured many, many uh, British ships. Uh, he had a reputation for doing his work quite quickly, being very efficient, very brave, not uh, getting nervous under pressure. He was cool, calm and collected when the fighting began. And there was one instance of him capturing three British sloops within the span of about an hour. All, off the all heavily armed too. All heavily armed off the New Jersey coast. But what he's probably known for the most, at least what I talk about in the book, is an interesting encounter he had with a very large British ship, the Achilles. Uh, basically, in the summer of 1780, uh, Harridan and the Pickering, which was a letter of mark privateer. And I have to 
give the re the listeners a distinction. There were privateers that were just straight privateers that went out solely for the purpose of hunting and capturing British prizes. Then there were privateers who were all they were all issued letters of mark, but there were also privateers that were called letters of mark privateers, and they could attack British ships if they had the opportunity, but they were also engaged in commerce and had trade goods on board. So they were sort of double duty privateers. Most of the privateers during the American Revolution were straight privateers, not letters of mark privateers. However, the Pickering during this voyage in June of 1780 to Bilbao, Spain, which was a friendly port, Spain, remember, was on our side, to Bilbao, Spain, the letter, the uh, the Pickering was a letter of mark. So he was going to Bilbao to trade. Along the way, he captured a ship called the Golden Eagle, a British ship. But then when he got to uh, the outskirts of Bilbao, just offshore, he was greeted by uh, a British Luger called uh, the Achilles. Now, Harridan at the time only had 38 men on board, plus some British prisoners, and he only had 16 cannons. The Achilles, which was threatening him, had about 130 men on board and 43 cannons. So this was late in the day, and Harridan assumed that the battle would ensue the next morning. So he went to sleep, and he told his men to rouse him should the Achilles begin to make an approach. In the meantime, the people in Bilbao, because this is a fairly large port, got wind that there was going to be a battle offshore between this British ship and this American ship. So the next morning as the sun rose, there were about a thousand spectators on the beach waiting to watch this spectacle. And uh, Harridan woke up, uh, he, he, came to, he came to the main deck. He was very calm, cool, calm and collected. The Achilles started its approach. Along the way, the Achilles recaptured or captured the Golden Eagle, which Harridan had earlier captured. And uh, Harridan knew that he needed a little bit of a stronger force to fully man all of his cannons. So he offered the British prisoners a deal. Those who would step forward and fight with the Americans would get a cut of the prize money. And 10 of them stepped forward. So this raised his uh, crew size to 48 from 38, still greatly outnumbered and outgunned. But uh, the battle commenced. Uh, before the battle commenced, he basically told his men, he goes, if you're, if, you, if, you're, if you're steady with your shot and you don't waste your fire, we will do fine. And one of his men said that during the battle, which lasted for two months, two hours of booming broadsides and just battle from within just 100 yards of each other, a couple hundred yards, they, he said uh, that he was as calm as if it was amidst a shower of snowflakes. And finally, Harridan ordered his men to put bar shot in the cannons. Now, bar shot uh, is basically two cannonballs connected by an iron bar. And when it leaves the cannon, it spins wildly and it can destroy the rigging and sails and even a mast of a ship or spars of a ship should it hit them head on. So the Achilles was gravely damaged by this assault. It wasn't completely defeated, and even though it was gravely injured, it still was a faster ship than the Pickering because it retreated, and Harridan tried to follow with the Pickering, but the Achilles was too fast. So Harridan spun around, and he recaptured the Golden Eagle, which he had earlier lost, 
one of Harridan's men had been killed. His head was sheared off by a cannonball. Eight men had been seriously wounded. How many were wounded or killed on board the British ship is unknown. Now, Harridan and the Pickering go into Bilbao. The word spreads of this great American victory. And according to eyewitnesses, he basically was treated like a hero and carried on their shoulders into town and fed it at dinners. And so Harridan stayed in Bilbao for about two months. He refilled his ship with new cargo back across the Atlantic, true to form. He encountered three British merchant ships, which he captured, manned them as prize vessels, sent them back into Salem, Massachusetts. And when he returned to Salem, the owners of the Pickering decided to honor their intrepid captain, and they gave him a silver tankard and two silver mugs, each inscribed with an image of the Pickering and his initials. And when Harridan died in 1803 at the age of 59 of tuberculosis, the local paper, the Salem Gazette, lauded him as one of the most brave and daring uh, men in the revolution who fought for their new nation. And I happened to agree. And it was funny, not funny, it was an interesting uh, event. About a week ago, I gave a talk in Hull, Massachusetts. And who is in the audience? But two men, one of whom, a former naval officer, both of whom had the same last name, Harridan. <laughs> and in fact, Jonathan Harridan was their great, 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 great grandfather. So that? I thought that was uh, that was really neat. And they, they bought copies of the book and told me some stories about their family. And they said they only wished their father was still alive because he was the amateur historian in the family and would have loved seeing his ancestor uh, given pride of place in this book. Yeah, your book has some great pictures in it, too, including uh, the, the prize that they gave him. Uh, the silver right. was it a silver, silver mug? Tank, a silver, a silver tankard, tankard and, and two mugs. Beautifully done. Oh, it was beautifully done. It was done by a, a jeweler in Boston, a very famous jeweler at the time. And the thing that's interesting about that picture is I got that from the Peabody Essex Museum, which is in Salem, Massachusetts. And the Peabody Essex Museum plays an important role in my life because I got married in that museum back in <laughs> 1995. So it was nice to be able to use images from the museum. See, this is how historians get married, listeners. Just wanted you all to know they, <laughs> they don't use traditional churches. They find the best museum. <laughs> right. <laughs> Before you said that most privateers were not pirates. And how do you make that distinction? Well, uh, pirates were uh, the enemies of all mankind. Uh, they had no allegiance to a country. They were out for themselves, even though many people referred to them as Robin Hood's men, stealing from the rich to give to the poor. They were they may have been stealing from the rich and merchants, which they didn't like, but they were the only poor that they were giving it to were themselves. And uh, they did have articles of agreement and they operated by a code. And so, too, did privateersmen. They had articles of agreement and there was a code of sorts. But the main difference is that privateers were uh, forces that were used by governments to fight enemies during times of war. And uh, privateers that are operating properly would not 
um, would, would not torture any of their victims, try to, would try to avoid killing their victims other than in battle. But pirates were often quite nasty to people that they captured. But the main difference is the letter of mark and the context within which they were operating. Pirates were out in the open sea. They had no allegiance to a country. They were fighting on behalf of themselves. Privateers were part of a country, or in this case, a country to be. They were fighting for a larger cause, which was the independence of their country or just their country. And although there was a profit motive, just as was the case with pirates, it was uh, very well regulated and very few, if any, American privateers during the American Revolution veered into anything that could be broadly described as piracy. But I have to point out, even if you still want to view privateers as nothing other than legalized pirates, that's fine. You can. I happen to disagree. But that doesn't in any way diminish the thrust of the story, which is privateers, whatever you think of them, had a major impact on the outcome of the American Revolution. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. Just like just like privateers and pirates had a huge impact upon the War of 1812 when it came to right. running the British out of Louisiana. Right. I've got if I'm going to let you take a coffee break while I read a section from your book from the chapter A Privateersman's Life that I think our listeners will enjoy. George Washington, that paragon of Republican virtue, understood the mixed motivations of men all too well, having had to deal with numerous soldiers and sailors disgruntled over their pay, or lack thereof. On April 21st, 1778, he wrote from Valley Forge to John Bannister, his friend and officer in the Virginia militia, demonstrating keen insight into human nature. He wrote, Men may speculate as they will. They may talk of patriotism. They may draw a few examples from ancient story of great achievements performed by its influence. But whoever builds upon it as a sufficient basis for conducting a long and bloody war will find themselves deceived in the end. <laughs> we must take the passions of men as nature has given them and those principles as a guide which are generally the rule of action. I do not mean to exclude altogether the idea of patriotism. I know it exists, and I know it has done much in this present contest. But I will venture to assert that a great and lasting war can never be supported on this principle alone. It must be aided by a prospect of interest or some reward. For a time it may, of itself, push men to action, to bear much, to encounter difficulties. But it will not endure unassisted by interest. Right. I think that is an incredibly powerful and important and insightful quote on, uh, that came from George Washington, who was a, uh, a, a good judge of men's character. And part of the reason I spend quite a bit of time in the book debunking the notion that privateersmen were only in it for greedy purposes, for the money, is that if you really understand the broader context of the revolution and the other people that were involved, the army men, the Continental Navy men, the Continental Congress, um, all of them had financial incentives as part of their motivation to be engaged in this war. Anybody in the Continental Navy or a state Navy or Washington's secret Navy got paid and they also got a portion of the prize money. Uh, anybody in the Continental Army they were paid and they were promised 
uh, cash bonuses and land. And in fact, when that stuff didn't come through is when George Washington had the greatest difficulty maintaining a fighting force. So money was running through everything and helping the war to function. Without money, there wouldn't have been any war in the first place. So when you look at it more broadly and you compare privateers' motivations to the motivations of other individuals who are engaged in the battle, and then when you take into account General George Washington's very insightful comments, you realize that Republican virtue alone, the notion of the public good above everything else, and that there should be no private pecuniary interest in the war at all, just flies in the face of human nature. In fact, the entire reason, or one of the main reasons that this war was launched was because of fights between the elites in the colonies and the British government over taxation and navigation laws, which constrained and controlled the manner in which wealthy individuals within the colonies could pursue their business. That at its root was a debate and a fight over money and who got to make money and how they got to make money. So I was, because I was upset by some of the things I was reading where people just cavalierly threw off a statement that privateersmen were greedy profiteers and left it at that, I felt it was necessary to step up and defend them and place their behavior and their actions into a broader context. So if you want to call privateers uh, greedy profiteers, you have to be willing to also call Continental Navy uh, men greedy privateers, those who served in the army, and many of our uh, congressional delegates who were making a mint off of privateering themselves and believed very strongly that privateering was part of the public good, despite the fact that it was making some individuals rich and there was a profit motive that was creating the incentive for people to go out and put their lives on the line in the first place as privateers. And that's one other thing that's very important to keep in mind. Anybody who was fighting in the army or who was in the Continental Navy or was a privateer was really, in a very real sense, putting their lives on the line. Uh, Benjamin Franklin is reported to have said, if we don't hang together, we'll all hang separately. Well, there's no evidence that he actually said it, but the sentiment is true. And if we had lost the war, not only would our congressional elites and naval officials and especially officers been subject to some form of punishment and possibly even hangings, but the merchants who promoted privateering with the British hated they would have been subject to some form of punishment, as would the privateersmen who operated on board those ships. So, And it was not done without risk. A lot of these guys ended oh. up getting caught and killed, and a lot of these guys ended up on British prison ships. Great risks, not only from the, the weather and uh, the ships foundering, but also if they were captured by the British, they could, as you said, end up on British, pri British prison ships where something like 90% of the men died because the conditions were so horrific. So you, you really have to take into account the larger story to understand why men did what they did during the American Revolution. 
I mean, as an armchair historian or as an historian sitting here in my comfortable office, I wonder what I would have done had I been alive during the American Revolution. Would I have fought for my country? I like to think that I would have. But it would have been a very momentous decision because they knew at the time that they were literally putting their lives on the line. Yeah. This is no no cakewalk. <laughs> no, their necks their necks were their necks were ready for the noose. And their families were often split. Their families and friends, and you didn't know who was a Tory supporter and who wasn't. So you had to mm -hmm. keep notoriously quiet. You didn't right. know if your own son was a loyalist or not. It was just right. a very, very hard time on Americans. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to let you choose from three unsung heroes whose story you'd like to share. First, Offen Boardman. Second, James Fort. And third, David Ropes. Okay, I'm going to pick James Fortin just because I love his story and it's unusual and very few of your listeners will have heard it. James Fortin was a free black teenager during the war. He was 14 in 1780 when he signed on to the privateer Royal Lewis out of Philadelphia. Now, he was part of a free black family in Philadelphia, which was quite unusual at the time. Uh, most black individuals in the colonies were enslaved. So you have to ask, first off, why did he throw in his lot with the Americans? Why did he decide to become a privateersman? And there are two reasons that we can divine from the history. First is in 1776, on July 8th of 1776, he listened to the Declaration of Independence being read in one of the public squares. And he heard the rousing words of the Declaration that all men are created equal. And he thought, well, maybe that'll apply to black men and women as well. Then four years later, in 1780, Pennsylvania passed the first abolition of slavery law in the colonies or the United States. It was a gradual abolition of slavery law. It didn't free enslaved persons right away, but it, it freed their children once they turn 28. So those two things, the Declaration of Independence and its rousing, or, uh, rousing uh, words and the uh, abolition of slavery law in 1780 convinced Fortin to throw in his lot with the Americans and fight on behalf of this cause. Now, the first cruise of the Royal Lewis that he was on, he was what was called at the time a powder monkey. He would bring gunpowder to a cannon station so that they could uh, prepare the cannon for firing. The first cruise was very successful. They captured seven British prizes. Unfortunately, uh, one of the cannon crews that he was working for, all of them, according to his own recollection, were killed when a cannonball came through the hull of the ship and, uh, and uh, just destroyed uh, three of those men. He survived. So he came back, he gave some money to his, his mother, and he decided to sign up for a second cruise on the Royal Lewis. Well, he shouldn't have been so eager in hindsight, because barely a day out of port, the Royal Lewis was captured by the HMS Amphion, a Royal Naval ship, 64-gun ship, Captain John Baisley. Now, Fortin was extremely fearful at this moment because he had heard and he had heard accurately that many men of his complexion, namely black, 
who were captured by the British would be sold into slavery in the Sugar Islands in the Caribbean. And he thought that was going to be his fate. However, for reasons that we don't know, Captain Baisley decided to choose James Fortin as the companion for his 12-year-old son who was on board the ship and needed a companion. It couldn't be left to his own devices. So for a few weeks, James Fortin was companion to his son. So when they pulled into New York City, where all the men on board the Royal Lewis were to be turned over to the local British prison warden and placed on the Jersey, one of the worst prison ships known to man, uh, James Fortin was given a choice by Captain Baisley. The captain said, you can go to England as a ward of my son. You can have money, you'll be educated, and you'll be free. Or you are going to join the rest of the men on the Royal Lewis and be placed on the Jersey prison ship. And Fortin chose his country. And he said, I cannot turn on them. And he was placed on the Jersey where he survived, amazingly enough, for eight months before he was uh, let go in a prisoner exchange. Wow. Now, his life, his life after the American Revolution was almost as exciting. He never gave up the fight to have his new country live up to the words of the Declaration of Independence. And he, one of the things he did with the money that he earned, he was a sailmaker. He had one of the largest sailmaking operations in Philadelphia. And when he died in 1842, he left behind an inheritance of $70,000. He was a very well-respected and well-known man in the colonies, but he took some of his money to help a friend of his, William Lloyd Garrison, the famed anti-abolitionist. He helped him found his newspaper, The Liberator, which was the number one newspaper fighting against slavery in the United States. So Fortin had a fascinating life during the American Revolution, partly fueled by the hopes that he had for his fellow black men and women. And then after the war, he took some of his money and he spent a lot of his time fighting on behalf of enslaved individuals. A so fantastic I, story. I, yeah, I think I think it's a it's a great it's a great story. And I want to tell a related story just because I think it's interesting. Uh, there are very few paintings of privateersmen during the American Revolution. All of them are of white privateersmen. However, there was a painting that was from this era that showed a black mariner that was thought to be the only known painting of a black privateersman. And it was owned by a urologist who lived in Rhode Island. And he he often lent out images of this painting for many books about the American Revolution. And France's Tavern in New York City wanted to run an exhibition about black individuals' role in the American Revolution. And they wanted to use this painting as the centerpiece of their exhibition. So the urologist sent the painting out to a local art conservator to be spiffed up a little bit. Well, the art conservator took a little bit of solvent and rubbed one of the hands. Off came the black paint, exposing a white hand beneath. It turns out that sometime, likely in the mid-20th century, a savvy 
forger, realizing that a unique painting of a black privateersman, American privateersman, would be much more valuable than a painting of a white mariner of the same era doctored the painting. And he was right, because when it was thought to have been a black privateersman, the value of the painting was $300,000. When it was discovered that it was a forgery, the value of the painting went down to $3,000. So it was taken out of the France's tavern exhibition, and it went back to the urologist's dining room where it hang, hung for the rest of his life. <laughs> so I just thought that was a, a great story. And as he said, there are a lot of other stories about individuals. There are stories about privateers losing battles. They lost many battles. There's an entire chapter about the prisons in England and the prison ships in New York that makes for very traumatic reading. On the Jersey alone, which was nicknamed Hell Afloat by the men who were unfortunate enough to spend any time there, something like 90% of all the men on board that ship, which could hold between 850 and 1,200 men at any one time, something like 90% of them died. Mm -hmm. It's estimated that 11,500 men perished on the Jersey. Every day, every morning as the sun rose, the guards would yell down to the lower deck, rebels bring up your dead and between six and 12 men died every day. And one of the sources of information that I use for this book are the few memoirs that were written by men who were fortunate enough to survive their time on the Jersey. Just an absolutely horrific uh, chapter in the American Revolution. And those of your listeners who are familiar with the Civil War and the Andersonville prison will find that there might be some parallels there between, between the horrors of being in the prison during the Civil War and the horrors of being on one of these prison ships during the American Revolution. Yeah, but how should right. have gone? How should have gotten the rope from what he did? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot. It wasn't just it wasn't just him. It was a whole group of people that basically let this happen. And yes, there were atrocities, and I have to say there were atrocities on on both sides. But I think nothing nothing compares to what the British did to Americans, largely on these prison ships in New York. What was the biggest surprise story you found in your research? Something that really just <laughs> rocked you? Uh, well. The first answer will be a little bit of a cop out because the biggest surprise was that privateering had such an impact on the American Revolution, enough, but that's yeah. the entire theme of the book. But the next biggest surprise uh, was the role of France and how privateering helped to generate great animosity between France and England that played a role in creating the context for France to come into the war on the side of the Americans. I just thought that was fascinating. And I need to step back for a second and make a more generic comment. I am not trained as an historian. As I mentioned before, my, my educational background is in biology and public policy. I just love, uh, I love history. But as a result, I don't have a deep well of, I didn't study history for decades and as a result, I pick topics that interest me, but almost every topic I pick is on a subject that I don't know a lot about before I start working on the book. Yep. And that's for, that's for a very specific reason. 
because I have to work on these books for so long, I want to remain excited and engaged. And if I pick a topic I don't know a lot about, I'm always learning new things. So again, this may be a cop-out answer, but almost every story in the book was entirely new to me and just blew me away, reading about James Fortin, reading about Jonathan Harridan, reading about how the French were influenced to become our allies in part because of the activities of American privateersmen, reading about John Adams and the crucial role he played in the establishment of privateering in the colonies, reading about uh, what Benjamin Franklin was doing both in the colonies and in France to encourage privateering. It just, every step of the way was a fascinating discovery for me. <laughs> and, and I hope that some of that fascination, you know, makes its way onto the written page. I've got a real humdinger of a question for you. All right. Netflix has <laughs> okay. just offered you a 10 episode series <laughs> using your book, Rebels at Sea, yes. as the source. How would That'd you start great. it? What would your first episode consist of? How would you start the book? Hmm. Well, I might start it the way that I actually started the book with the story about Jonathan Harridan sort of to set the stage. I tend to let, I tend to go chronologically. Um, so I, I may start in the just the generic uh, start of so many movies and documentaries about the American Revolution, the absolute absolutely horrible state that uh, Massachusetts and the broader colonies were in as the British started to press their advantage in 1775. I also might start it with the debate within Massachusetts Provincial Congress over the first privateering act. That would have been lively, yes. On November 1st, because there's a lot of good documentation about it. And they were really going where nobody had ever gone before. They didn't want to officially declare our independence from Britain yet, but they were being attacked on the ocean. The Americans are being attacked on the ocean by the British, so they needed and the to soldier, defend. And the soldiers them. were being impressed. The, the American they, naval they, men were being impressed into the British army, yes. which really yes, ticked so, people off. Yes, yeah, so they had to defend themselves. So I, I think maybe starting with Massachusetts going first and how that was part of a broader picture of American defiance of Britain, that might be a good way to start it. So if you know anybody at Netflix who wants to reach out to me, feel free to give them my telephone number or my email address. <laughs> okay. Yeah, briefly, could you share the story of Christopher Hawkins? Even the name reminds me of a character in Robert Louis Stevenson's books. Quite a story. Yeah, it is a, it is a great story. I'm not going to... I mean, basically... Uh, Christopher Hawkins was working on a farm in Rhode Island as a as a farmer, and uh, he didn't really like that uh, means of employ. So he left the farm in Smithfield, Rhode Island, and he joined the Mariana, a Providence uh, privateer. Unfortunately, the Mariana was captured by a British naval ship, and he was taken to New York and he was placed on the Jersey prison ship, Hell Afloat. But he didn't want to stay there. He wanted to escape. And he was told by many individuals that that would be largely impossible. Actually, his former captain on the Mariana said, you know, it's really going to be tough to escape because not only are there guards on the top of the Jersey, there are sentries along the land, which was not far away. And uh, 
making it even worse, you'd have to dive into the ocean and swim to your freedom. But Hawkins was not uh, dissuaded by these arguments, and he came up with a, uh, a plan to swim to a distant point that was beyond the sentries and make his escape. And he started planning with uh, another individual on board whose name was... William Waterman. Yeah, William Waterman. He started planning with William Waterman. And what they did is they, during nights when there was a lot of uh, storm activity and thunder and lightning, they would go down below decks and they would take off the iron bars that were keeping the men from escaping through these portholes. And then they would uh, put... Uh, their clothes over their handiwork, but basically they had gotten this the iron bars off. So they waited for another very stormy night. They went down, and with the help of men, other prisoners on board, they were lowered into the water. Both of them kept swimming. It was about a mile and a half in very cold water in October. Uh, Hawkins lost most of his clothes during this swim, and he also lost sight of Waterman, who he thought had died. It turns out Waterman escaped and ultimately made it back home, but uh, Hawkins did not know about that. So Hawkins makes it to land, and he's basically naked. He goes to a local farm the next day. He's eating stuff that he can find on the ground, rotten apples, old pieces of corn, and these two boys from the farm see him, this naked visage, and... uh, They want to know what what he is about. He tells them they go get their mother. Their mother comes back. And fortunately for Hawkins, she had some sympathies for the rebels, uh, the Americans. And she didn't turn him in, but she gave him some clothes and some food. And she told him that he could go to, uh, I think it was Oyster Bay. And there was a man there who would help him get uh, towards the end of Long Island. Uh, where he could ultimately get back to Connecticut and then Rhode Island, where he was from. Well, along the way, he's stopped by British soldiers. He manages to get captured, but the British soldiers were not very good at uh, keeping him in bondage. They were going to return him to the Jersey, but he managed to escape. And then the coincidence of all coincidences along the road he knocks into the very man who the woman back earlier had told him to uh, see when he got to Sag Harbor. Well, that man had business closer to New York, but he told him, go on to Sag Harbor, tell them who you are, go to my house, they'll take care of you, I'll be back there and I'll meet you in a little while. And amazingly enough, Hawkins was able to make it through the length of Long Island, reconnect with this man's family, and they sent him across Long Island Sound to Stonington. And from there, he ultimately made his way back to Smithfield, Rhode Island. Uh, and so it was a really great story of uh, determination. Could you please share your contact information and let our listeners know how they can get your book? Yes. Well, how you can get the book, you can basically go to any bookstore. If they don't have the book on their shelf or if they don't have it in stock, they can always order it and get a copy, an independent bookstore, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you name it, you should be able to get the book. But what I really would recommend you do is take a look at my website for a couple of reasons. My website is my name, Eric J. Dolan. It's E-R-I-C-J-A-Y-D-O-L-I-N.com. 
And the reason you should take a look at the website is you can not only find out something about my background, you can also read the introduction to Rebels at Sea to see if you like to read the whole book. You can also read the introductions to all of my other books, and you can see the events that I have. I'm giving a number of talks on Rebels at Sea, uh, mostly in New England, but also farther afield. So if you want more information on this book, my other books, where I'm speaking, I have a. I also have a contact page if you want to send me a note. Many people who have read my book or have questions about their ancestors reach out to me through email, and there is a contact page or tab on my website where you can send me an email directly. Before we go, I'm going to ask you to share the titles of some of your other books that you think our listeners might be interested in. Sure. Uh, well, there's Black Flags, Blue Waters, the epic history of uh, America's most notorious pirates. There's Leviathan, the history of whaling in America. There's A Furious Sky, the 500-year history of America's hurricanes. Uh, I wrote a book called When America First Met China, which is all, all about the early China trade. There's a book called Fur, Fortune, and Empire, uh, about the epic trade of the epic history of America's fur trade. You, you're seeing a theme here. A number of my books have epic in the title. I, I didn't. <laughs> I don't think we're going to have that in any future titles. But my publisher was very fond of epic. But the truth is, a lot of my books are epic in the sense that they cover two, three, four centuries of of history. So those are some of the books that I would recommend people take a look at. A lot of them have maritime themes. And if you like Rebels at Sea, I think you'll like some of those others as well. And listeners, I promise you, you will like Rebels at Sea. I highly recommend you pick this book up. It's great action from beginning to end. And it's a, it's a, it's a tremendous story of a, fabric of, American, of a fabric of history, a part of our American Revolution that's rarely talked about or studied. But man, it's good. And, it's, and it, <laughs> it'll broaden your knowledge and entertain you at the same time. Listeners get Rebels at Sea. And Eric J. Dolan, thank you so much for giving us your time today. We appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me. It was great.